Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of songwriting visionaries who came to prominence in the 1990s with well-respected indie bands and who both have vital new music out now. Jason Little and Griff Reese. Now, Little started making music under the name Granddaddy back in 1992. He was a pro skateboarder who found a second passion in home recording, and as you'll hear in this chat, kind of stumbled upon some guys who helped him flesh out the sound into something both humble and grand. The first run of Granddaddy albums, including Under the Western Freeway and 2000's classic The Software Slump, felt a bit like quieter, more heartfelt cousins to the music the Flaming Lips were making at the time. After that initial run, the band eventually split up, only to reform sporadically over the years. Little also recorded some really fascinating solo records while also taking time, as you'll hear, to try and leave the music world behind a little bit. But he's been called back to the Granddaddy world with a brand new album called Blue Wave, and it's everything you'd expect from his brain. A mixture of sweet sadness with fuzzy guitars and synths from another age. Check out a little bit of Cabin in My Mind from Blue Wave right here. other half of today's conversation is Griff Reese, who just released his 25th album overall in a career that has spanned 35 years and taken some fascinating turns. He's still probably best known as the frontman of the colorful, psych-leaning Welsh pop band Super Furry Animals, which was signed to the venerated Creation Records label back in the 1990s, and whose records and visuals always zigged when you thought they might zag. That's a compliment. For his solo work, Reese has been genre-expansive to say the least, but his brand new record, Sadness Sets Me Free, is refreshingly straightforward. As you'll hear in this chat, it was recorded pretty quickly without a lot of fuss. It doesn't sound miles away from the new Granddaddy album, really. Check out a little bit of the song Bad Friend right here. Though I can promise you Every hour of every day I need to feed the kids And take them to the park to be everything for everyone All I can say is that As it turns out, these two toured together a million years ago and each has fond memories of that time. A soccer match, a special parting gift, and more. They also chat about Little's preference to stay away from the madness of the big city even as he lives perilously close to it once again. As well as their tendency to make up words in their songs when the ones that exist just won't do. Enjoy. I've had some pretty ridiculous setups. Like, like one of the granddaddy houses was, um, no, I mean, we used to record. That was our big thing. It was just like, take over the whole house, you know? And we even had like, you know, A, B, and C studios and different bedrooms. And, but then the whole living room was like this massive console, you know, with tape machines and, you know, the band set up and stuff. My current setup actually exists in the bedroom, like literally in in the bedroom just because before it was in the garage and it gets really, really hot here in the summertime. So the only way I could finish the record was to move everything indoors because I was tired of having flies and like bugs and 
there's only like three hours of the day where you can record because it gets so like sweltering hot out there uh, during the daytime. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's so strange. We have the opposite in the sense of we have to um, deal with cold. I think no matter what, I've kind of found that the universe is doing everything it can to, to keep me not working on stuff. <laughs> As if it wasn't a challenge enough. I feel like you managed to kind of retain the atmosphere from where you are in, in your recordings. I'm sure I've heard crickets on your record and the kind of um, insects and you bring your environment on, onto some of those records. Oh, yeah, I love to. It's, I mean, all that really is is just an extension of albums being your own document of your own life. It seems natural to me that you would include all the stuff that was happening around you. I read a little bit about the process of your making this record. You guys had been playing a lot, right? I wanted to play with people in the room, I suppose, after being locked up for the pandemic. Yeah. And we were on tour, so we rehearsed a lot of songs. So we, we went to a studio for three days and played everything live. But it was a nice place. And we mic'd up the outdoors, we, we recorded the bird song, and I walked around the block, it was in on the outskirts of Paris. So it was like recording mopeds whizzing by on my phone. And, yeah. Um, so I'm capture capture the moment. But it's quite an acoustic record, you know, it's, um, and it's unusually simple in a sense. It's double bass, drums, piano, string quartet, just very acoustic and um Live. You did all that in three days, by the way. <laughs> uh, I had to, you know, within reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have found the fancy studio for three days and then I can overdub a lot of bad lyrics. But, I mean, some of the lyrics, I sat on the recordings for about six months and then, like, listened to it again and was like, gosh, oh, you know, I need to change those words. <laughs> <laughs> some things, it's good to leave things sometimes and come back to them. And, I mean, I added some synths as well, all those sounds you find and textures and you know that set your records apart yeah i mean there's a lot of that stuff i've listened to the record a number of times at this point and uh i actually made some notes and i was gonna <laughs> put you on the spot with some questions <laughs> but i can get around to that <laughs> yeah we you know we work in extremely different climates well we have a, a historical connection because we've to it together a lot but i think we have you know some musical connections i feel through bands like elo for example that maybe we've both had some kind of informative experiences with i go really really deep with the elo thing it's to the point where it's hard to talk about sometimes because it's so it's so enmeshed in my dna we may have talked about it in the past but um do you have some first memories i would imagine just because of our age it's something you discovered when you were at this kind of a, you know, a crucial developmental part of your life or your upbringing, you know, where things have a, a more of a profound impact on you, the, the young listening mind. I can't remember when Mr. Blue Sky came out, but I remember I was, you know, under 10 and it was maybe the mid to late 70s. And it was like, I remember clearly hearing it on TV because it was introduced on TV as a kind of novelty because it featured an electronically created voice. I think they were using a, a, some kind of a quote yeah. to say Mr. Blue Sky. It was on some kind of miming program called Top the Pops or some, mm. some kind of program like that. And they made a big deal of, of the use of the electronic vocal. I remember it clearly. So that, you know, that was a huge song. And then when I was in my sort of late teens, early twenties, I was I would buy 
a lot of second-hand LPs from sort of thrift shops, you know, um, so I could pick up yellow albums for 10 pence, you know, like 20 cents or something. Or just so I'd be listening to, I'd be picking up, you know, songs like The Whale and I'd be yeah. <laughs> zoning, zoning out to The Whale. <laughs> that one's not often cited. Uh, <laughs> so, so thank you. And my first language is the Welsh language. And when I was about 25, I decided to try singing in English. I had no idea what how my English accent should sound. Yeah. But all, all I knew that I liked the way bands from Birmingham sounded Birmingham, England. So <laughs> I, I think I was trying to mimic, you know, Jeff Lynne and maybe Black Sabbath and, I don't know, in my accent. Yeah, sometimes it's hard for uh, Americans to uh, make the distinction between different sections of the UK yeah. and the inflections and the uh, it's it's tough for us to do that. Um, but every now and then I'll hear other bands that are from Birmingham and I'll be like, oh yeah. I start to hear the commonality of the sounds. The only one that I can really pick out is like Manchester. <laughs> I listened to something recently and the guy kept it's like it's like like i went to the pub uh, uh, no i i wait i uh uh there's there was some blood there's some blood in the pub and and uh and i got clubbed i got clubbed in the pub and now there's blood and and i was like this guy has to be from manchester just because it, it's like that pub love love pub club and uh yeah, sure enough, he was from Manchester. So I was pretty proud of myself for, for picking that out, because <laughs> it's tough for us to do that. But uh, I guess does, does so. Does Jeff Lynn have a? Uh, does he have a Birmingham accent? Uh, if he does, that means I love Birmingham accents because yeah. uh, it's a. Uh, I feel like it's very neutral. There's something kind of neutral and common man about it, or maybe that's just his lyrics. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I've never thought of it as being a distinct. Birmingham accent, but then that's just my own sheltered American ear. But there was a, there was a couple of lyrical things I was curious about after having listened to your record a bunch of times. Did you make up the word outricated? Oh yes, yeah. I think, <laughs> um, yeah. I was. I thought. I thought I wasn't hearing it right, and I was like, "Please <laughs> let that. Please let that be what I thought he just said." And then I looked it up, and I was like, "Fuck yeah." <laughs> I love that. I love making up words, and they make perfect sense, but they don't exist. Yeah, I think I think pop is a great place, you know, pop music or whatever you call it, because you know I feel free from the literary world. Yeah, and um, you know you can spell things differently, and it's more relaxed. You don't have the uh, the schoolmaster behind you, just like looking over your shoulder, just about to whack you with the ruler on the back of the hand. Yeah, I think it's only the, maybe the second word they've made up. I know I made. I used the word called squirrelized. In what, what, uh, what's it? What's the word? Squirrelized. Squirrelized. Yeah, like uh, to get squirrely. Yeah, like, a like, squir squir like squirrel like <laughs> an animal. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm gonna squirrelize you. Um, <laughs> I guess turn you into a squirrel or something like that. Okay. I got to make one up. It was an older granddaddy song. It's like if you're saying, um, I'm sorry, I'm dumb. It's the word for that, which is I'm dumbivity. So I made up I'm dumbivity by that song, Summer Here Kids. It's like a, yeah. a 
do as I didn't do because I'm a picture of I'm dumb Ivity. So I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> Making up words is great. Yeah. I mean, somebody made him up at some point anyways, right? Exactly. Ever-changing. All we're doing is just, we're just using all these words that somebody else got to have fun making up. So why not, why not keep on, carry on the tradition? Yeah. Wow. Didn't a gal from the uh, Cocteau Twins, didn't she have her own language that she made up? Yeah. And that's what Sigaras oh, claimed that okay. as well, do they? they? I mean, they claim they sing in Atlantic. I don't know if it's something they just make up for the press. <laughs> I have to mention another lyric that you wrote that I like. On Celestial Candy Floss, you make uh, the, the chasing, the, the park ranger chasing line, but then you mix it up on the last bit by saying, legging it like a park ranger. We don't even use that line over here, legging it, like, like legging it. And that's, like just, that's just like hauling ass, right? Yeah. And, you know, you go into the wilderness and you, that's a big part of who you are from what I can see, what I've always seen of you, really. Yeah. That's a huge part of who I am and what I do and, and sort of where I'm from and how I keep my sanity yeah. and uh, just how I kind of keep an overall balance in my life, you know? It's becoming even more and more prominent. Sometimes it becomes a problem because the more I sort of stay in that world, the less tolerant I become of, uh, you know, dealing with the hustle and the bustle and staring at screens and all that shit. So for me, it's definitely a challenge to maintain this sort of balance of transitioning from that world to this world, to that world, to this world. And do you live close to nature now? Yes. It's a little deceptive to say that I live in Los Angeles because uh, right outside of Los Angeles is a pretty amazing, I mean, the diversity of, of what I have access to here is pretty incredible. But I live about 10 to 15 miles out from this, you know, the shit. So I'm kind of at the base of the mountains here. Like even, even if you're in downtown LA and you look north, you would see this pretty amazing mountain range. And I'm right at the base of that. So, so I have access to, you know, the everything that exists in the shit. That was kind of the plan moving here was having access to that. But it's kind of amazing how how little I utilize it. I'm just, I've seen some benefits. Like my, my record label is here. So even, you know, I had a lot of instances where I was working on artwork. So the art person would come over to my house and we could sit there together, you know, yeah. and do things, work on things quickly. And like the studio that I went and tracked all the drums in was, it's like, you know, 10 minutes from my house. So part of me, part of me would love to live in a very remote, uh, you know, leave me the fuck alone kind of area, but I, I'm still confident that there's a way to pull off both and not have either side be too compromised, you know? Yeah. Did you try moving to Montana? Yeah. I was there for almost eight years. Yeah. Wow. That was great. I didn't remember it was that long. And was the wilderness close to where you grew up? It was like fields and orchards. I lived more out in the country. And I was, times were different back then, too. I mean, we had no neighbors. So I, had, I was able to wander a lot and just sort of, uh, you know, we had dogs. So my upbringing was pretty much a, like an, an equal balance between I would draw and I would listen to music and then I would just wander outside. And that was, you know, obviously I went to school and stuff. And, and I would say those were my my richest formative years. So it's it had a lasting impact. 
my first encounter with mountains was was just from coffee table books, you know, of you know, you you'd open the book and there'd just be like, you know, some some picture of the, you know, the the Eiger or the Matterhorn or something. And I'd be like, oh my God, what is that? It's so scary. And it's but it's so, you know, and then they'd probably show, you know, pictures of, you know, mountain climbers and just people leading like these adventurous existences and uh that kind of led to my fascination with just wanting to spend a lot of time in mountains now i remember us touring together and you telling me that you grew up and your dad used to take you into the mountains and take you on hikes and you'd go camping as well you said yeah i i had a similar upbringing in that you know i was listening to music and drawing and i could win the around somewhat and my dad was a, a mountaineer who's kind of obsessed with mountains oh nice did you guys live uh nearby like where it was convenient to kind of get up in them or would it be or taking dedicated trips yeah you could walk you know leave the the town and the village and walk straight up to the mountains um oh nice like some of my first memories is i'd, I'd be put in a backpack you know I'd like poke my head out now and again and then <laughs> yeah. close the lid, you know, because there's fog or something. Sure. You know, weirdly, when you when you live close to the mountains, you don't notice them until you leave. But I, I definitely feel more at home in kind of hilly areas than flat yeah. areas freak me out a bit. Um, but I remember, I remember <laughs> the last time I saw you was you played uh, one of your uh, piano shows in Cardiff. In yeah, Cardiff. Yeah, and I think that morning you you climbed Ruiva or um, Snowton. Yeah, in in English. I guess I got a rare sunny day for that for whatever time of the season it was, and uh, I had a great day. It was it was a long day, and I'm sure I was yawning when I was sitting at the piano stool, but uh, <laughs> it was worth it. Yeah, no, it was. So I, I grew up close to where you were. Oh, okay. Where you, where you were climbing. On there, nice. so, so it's like a four-hour drive to Cardiff or yeah. something. Yeah, but I guess I suppose four hours is an acceptable short drive in North America. But it seems like yeah. a, a long drive in in Wales. Definitely used to them, and now you know with with podcasts, you know, and earbuds, and you know, having a endless list of albums that I would like to get around to listening to. For, you know, anything anything in the four to eight hour range of driving is effortless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played a show together, Super Animals and Grandaddy, in an industrial town in Wales, Port Albert, in a venue called the Avanlito, which isn't there anymore. It was one of my favourite shows ever. Was that the one with the water slides? <laughs> yeah, I just remember going to an after show party in a, in a bar upstairs. It was like a big leisure centre with a, a venue, but there was yeah, a huge swimming pool. But they, I think you came, it was the last show of the tour. We toured Ireland and everywhere. And I remember, uh, as a parting gift, you pulled a plastic leaf from a plastic plant. Yeah. Because it was like, it looked like a, an extremely 19, 1980s mall-style interior. And uh, <laughs> you pulled the plastic leaf and you wrote in a pen on the, on the leaf, um, this leaf is rock and roll. I know you know what a real leaf looks like. <laughs> and uh, I took the leaf and I thought it was really profound. Um, and, and I put it in my wallet. Well, nice. it was profound. I put it in my wallet and put it in my coat 
And I was in transition between homes. I didn't have, <laughs> in any case, someone stole stole my coat. Oh, no. And, um, you know, I thought it was all gone. And then someone knocked on my door about a week later and they had the coat. And okay, good. It was, um, it was, that was almost yeah, a I've, rotten and I've still I've still got the leaf. Really? But I'm not I, sure where it is at the moment. It's, that's a, it's ah, safely kept. It's, it's in like a box, isn't it? Ah, that's incredible. That's... Love it. <laughs> no, that was that tour for us was a lot of fun. It's funny over the years of Granddaddy, somehow we got it be kind of it almost turned into this long running joke where like our the management company that we were working for, like I don't know if it was them or the label, but every everyone seemed to be scrambling to kind of link us up with the right people and we'd end up on these support tours supporting these bands that were just like, Oh, we're going to open you up to a broader audience. We're going to, you know, we're going to turn you on to like, you know, somebody other than your, your, whatever your fan base is. <laughs> and it's just always oftentimes more often than not, it ended up being a weird match. And so it's left to you to sort of apologize to the fans who are like, Oh, you know, we, we had to pay this crazy amount of money to come see you guys open up for this band that we don't really like, which I don't even feel, I don't feel like I'm being very nice or I don't feel comfortable saying that. But a lot of times it was actually not that great of a matchup. Like the tour we did with you guys was like easily one of the most enjoyable and funnest and like the, the commonality and the friendship and the, you know, and, and the, the lasting friendship, I should say. Which, which is always a good indication that, that it was a good decision made back then. Remember the football game? Remember, remember what, on the ferry? Remember yeah. when we played? Uh, I think the, the buses were parked and we, everyone woke up at like, you know, waiting for the ferry to sh arrive and everyone woke up at like some, some really obscene hour in the morning. Or maybe some people were still up, who knows? And uh, we, had a, we had a big game and I don't think yeah. anybody pulled any muscles, but some muscles probably should have been pulled because I I know I was in no shape to be running like that <laughs> at that time, but we yeah. got really into it. It was pretty heated. Yeah, it was in Dunleary in Ireland. Oh, okay. And yeah, and we were deluded, you know, that well, we we from Europe and they were to play us in soccer, you know. We thought, wow, we're gonna have, you know. We're going to hammer them, you know. And then, but we forgot the distinction that, you know, we just watch soccer on TV, whereas in America, people actually play the sports. So um, I think you completely thrashed this. I remember doing better than I thought we were going to do. We were, but we also, we also had a primarily, uh, a primarily British uh, and, and UK crew as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember you had um, some kind of bunk in your bus for... For your skates, but um, yeah. you, you all had your own skates. But it was, you, you were more like a skates, but you were like a skates, but gang. Oh, uh, yeah. Every, we'd, uh, we'd see you riding around whatever town. Yeah, that was the very beginnings of the band. Was Aaron used to work at a skate shop that I used to go to on a regular basis. And I didn't even know that he played the drums. Uh, he was just like some guy that I had befriended who worked at the shop. And um, at the time, he was playing in some some pretty bad uh like local reggae cover band and uh i may have overheard him talking about playing the drums or something and uh i was entertaining the idea of actually playing music live because at that point i'd been recording music just on my own you know 
just a you know home recording solo solo guy learning how to write songs and all that and uh but i had the idea of playing in front of people was like this was this almost this perverse curiosity that i had but i i realized in order to do that i needed some other musicians but i also wasn't going to be one of those guys who was going to the music store and you know putting up flyers with you know looking for looking for this and that and blah 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 i i knew that the only way it was going to be tolerable for me was to surround myself with uh, with people that i like to be around so and that was that was that was my first my first time kind of really playing with anybody was playing with Aaron who i had met at the skate shop and then of course i inherited Kevin uh, along with Aaron so that was <laughs> it was easy <laughs> I'll mention one more thing about the skateboarding thing was uh I like I have a long history like I I grew up you know, I used to do it competitively and I was sponsored and used to travel around and blah 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 it was a huge huge part of my life and it still actually is but it was such a sacred thing to me that I I never wanted to like I think the more that I saw all these other like rich kid punk rock bands that that were using skateboarding as a marketing tool like the the more I wanted to kind of keep it under wraps, or or the more it became, it became even more sacred to me. Yeah. I was just like, I'm not I'm not going to use this as a uh, as a marketing tactic. And as you could probably imagine, you know the the labels were always just kind of, hey, you know, we should like la la la. I mean, the most we ever did was we made granddaddy skateboards. You know, you just put graphics on the granddaddy yeah. graphics on a skateboard, which is cool. Nothing yeah. wrong with that, but but you know, like a perfect example, you know, that NXS album where he's oh, yeah, the yeah, person yeah. is standing on a skateboard for a real skateboarders. It's a nightmare looking at that uh, picture because the feet are all wrong, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's just like whoever did the photo shoot for that, like did <laughs> it's just, it's painful to look at because it's so like not legitimate. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House Podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. 
Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of the TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. A couple of things I appreciate that I picked up on, on your album, if you don't mind. First off, I wanted to say thank you for uh, on Sadness Sets Me Free, how you mentioned mentioned the Kestrel. And I realized <laughs> that I realized that a Kestrel just sounds too damn close to orchestral or uh, orchestral. Yeah. So I'm, nice... I'm stealing that. Thank you, and I'm stealing that. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm trying to overcompensate now to say a Kestrel because it sounds so like orchestral. <laughs> I love it. And it's yeah, it's it's a it's different to sing. It's from a song called "Sadness Sets Me Free." Yeah, and uh, maybe uh, you know joy and and hope and things are, are becoming. Well, I had a I had a strange feeling when I was listening to it on a really long bike ride, and uh, it I've listened to it a number of times now, but it kind of hit me in a different way. Uh, one day, I mean, I was like, "This is like it's kind of like a hymn." There's something about almost like being you know washed in the waters purified in the waters you know there was some there was that feeling that i was getting from it which was weird because i wasn't getting that like what i was just listening to maybe individual elements or just like maybe focusing on specific words and stuff but at some point i was just like it reminded me of like a like an old like a like not the sound of a gospel hymn maybe but just like you know, the idea that that is behind a lot of you know why those hymns or like those kind of religious songs of of redemption and, and purity. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, it's strange. I'm, I'm not religious, but I did have to go to chapel when I was a kid. And um, I went to Sunday school until I was about 15 because probably my parents wanted me out of the house. And, yeah. and there was a good crew of friends in the chapel. It was like a, a non-conformist Welsh language chapel. So it wasn't evangelical and we were taught not to take the bible literally for example yeah but it was a big hymn singing tradition i was at a funeral this morning you know when you know we were singing hymns and so they're around as popular song i suppose if i like it or not you know i, I know those tunes <laughs> but you know my songs i mean to be self-critical i, I find my songs uh, sometimes over repetitive you know, I'll, I'll repeat a chorus to death. And, you know, two years later, I'm like, wow, why did they, you know, this is so repetitive. There can be power in repetition, though. I'm totally into, if you know, if like Steve Reich or something, or, you know, mantras or dance music. Or, sure. But I mean, but when a song can be four minutes, you know, why make it five? But then um, Oshan, who plays, Oshan Gwyneth, who plays piano on this record, yeah. he was... He was like a child prodigy pianist and um, he had to stand in for the chapel organist from the age of 10. So he'd be like, he'd have to like go to the chapel and play to the masses as a child. No stage fright there. <laughs> so he, but 
he was saying he had to keep everyone in time as well as you know play the tunes. So he's he's like a combined drummer and keeper based somehow. Wow. Merle Haggard has an album and it's all it's all religious songs and hymns. And I don't know what the name of the album is, but I, I became really fond of it. I was listening to it for a long time and not I mean it's, I I could I could take or leave uh, religious music. I don't I don't care. I just I like how profound but simple and sweet and easy for my dumb brain to to digest. But then like the the lullaby sort of uh nursery rhyme element of it. The the melodies are usually very memorable and and very simple, but um I became really fond of this album. I found out later that the only reason this album exists is because he got into some trouble. He like he got arrested for something, so he decided to do it as like a community service. <laughs> it was yeah. part of his uh, part of his jail time, <laughs> or in order to cut down on his jail time, I suppose he elected to make this album. So I was like, oh my god, that's so great! <laughs> uh, adds a little adds a little tinge of evil to it. And one other thing I I got to sneak in here was. The line of uh, Australia is whiter than the moon. Yeah. At first, I thought you were actually saying whiter, like it's like the color white or the mm-hmm. non-color white, I should say. Yeah. Uh, and I, and then I was just like, and then I started laughing to myself that maybe I was so clever that I switched it to whiter, like like you know, as in width. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, and I was like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe Australia is whiter than the moon. I need to Google that. I don't know if you find that the best ideas for lyrics and things come from conversation often. But yeah, my friend Neil was talking about enthusiastically that the with this fact that um, Australia is whiter than the moon. <laughs> and uh, wow, you know, that's incredible. But I, I haven't verified it, but I did put it into song. You can bet I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm kinda of, I'm kinda of fascinated with Australia. Just even like the color of it, everything is so blown out and just like bright. And anytime there's a sort of vastness in in terrain and a, it just it's like takes wide open to like the next level. But then there's these beautiful beaches, you know. It's and getting from one end of it to the other is like it just it seems like there's a emphasis on endurance. <laughs> they have a they have really really good slang and it's. I could just sit and listen to Australian people talk and just, and, you know, like a wide-eyed little kid just listening to the slang that they sort of effortlessly pepper into all their conversations. I've been noticing, you've been getting into, like, twangy guitars. Like, I can imagine you in, you know, like, sticking your amplifier in a grain silo. I just, I listen to more country music than I do any other type of music. So, it's... uh, Yeah, is it all coming out... Yeah, it's, uh, mine's coming out in what's today? Eleven days. Eleven days. Mine wow. comes out. Yeah, amazing. Also, I, I, one of my conditions with uh, making this one was whatever label was interested, I was letting them know I have zero intention of any touring at all, and I could still change my mind. But I just wanted. I was curious to see if they would go for that. So that was that helped make the decision of putting pen to paper was uh if they would be up for that yeah so uh but it, it might yeah i might still throw something kind of scrappy together yeah but we'll see yeah that makes sense. unlike you said it sounds like you got a lot of stuff planned 
pretty extensive tour. Well, a couple of months. Coming to the West Coast and um, I'll uh, be bothering you again there. I think maybe last time I saw you on the West Coast, we tried to meet up at like 8am or something to watch Wales and Bosnia play <laughs> That's right. um, soccer. In a, didn't you end up at a, a you, didn't you end up at some Bosnian bar? Yeah, and uh, I watched it in, in Spanish in a Bosnian bar. <laughs> oh, of course um, you did. <laughs> and that was the, the only place I could find it. But, um, and I think you turned up right at the end, I think. Yeah, but that's a while great. back. That's, that's, that's like a decade, yeah, was, isn't I, it? Yeah, I think I lived there from like uh, 2014 to 2017 was wow. when I lived there. Wow. It's, it feels so recent, but it's a decade. That's, yeah, that's it's wild. pretty crazy. Well, yeah, I would love to swing around when you make it this way. The three times that I venture out of my neighborhood a year <laughs> sounds like a pretty justifiable excuse for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you do decide to play live, I'm looking forward to it. I was I was mind blown by your piano set in, in Cardiff. I had no idea. Because I'd, I'd only seen you play like um, old Yamaha synths and ultra melodic kind of keyboard lines on kind of 1980s keyboards and things. And, yeah. Um, to hear those songs played on the piano, it was incredible. Oh, cool. That place has a really nice piano, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, no chapel or something. Yeah, yeah, really cool layout. And it had the big TV as well. Yeah, that's actually, that's that's become like an essential thing for me is to have visuals playing. The idea of standing up on a stage and just being the primary focus is a nightmare to me. So I have all kinds of, all kinds of nice distractions. To look at. I like that about your records. They, I don't know that, you know, your production style has a video quality somehow. I, I don't know how to explain it because it's hard to explain sound. Yeah. But it's um, the imagery used to project with, with Granddaddy as well was had a kind of VCR quality that went with, uh, I suppose, the, the era of the keyboards you were using, but it's something your, your music still retains. Well, at some point, I felt like, <laughs> especially some of those earlier shows for us, it was just like, you look at our setup on stage, it just looked like a big junk store. We were like we were like five employees at a big shitty thrift store. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> but I don't know. And it was, it was just a crapshoot every night, too, that everything would work. That part was a little stressful. I guess how it is. Yeah, when you take old gear on the road and... Yes. Well, flimsy gear and... It was beautiful. Yeah. But, there's, you know, the a lyrical line goes through, you know, from the software slump to the water cooler, you know, the, it's re always relatable, super relatable lyrics and cosmic at the same time. You know, I don't know, it's, hard, it's something that's really hard to, to do and even harder to explain. <laughs> I think it should be hard to explain. I was just thinking about this the other day, about how... I've gotten to the point where I'm a little I'm a little um, suspicious of certain songwriters who have gotten so good at explaining everything that they do. I would I would rather have somebody who who can't quite put their finger on it. It's almost flipped to a point now where it's like you get these very mediocre and I know that's subjective word to use, but you get these sort of like eh, so so songwriters. <laughs> I sound like a dick right now. Uh, you get these so-so songwriters who are so good at explaining their music. 
they're almost like politicians, you know, they're, they're just like, or lawyers or something. And it's like, I don't want to hear that. Like, I would rather hear somebody that does something kind of uh, mysterious and can't, can't fucking put their finger on it without being coy, you know, or without being sort of, you know, like manu- like elusive in a, ma- in a manufactured kind of way. Like, if you don't know, that's okay not knowing. You don't have to take a course at getting better at, <laughs> at explaining this mysterious thing you do. Yeah. You know what I mean? I suppose we were lucky in that, you know, there's a lot of kind of paid music writers around that were, you know, people were paid to write about music. And I suppose that's getting more rare in some musicians have to talk about themselves that's a good point that's that's a good point and like we, we're left alone now like you know in the past there would have been a you know i feel like uh i feel like we had a good chat yeah it's lovely to talk to you even on a, a little phone screen yeah and hope i can see you soon and... yeah i'll look at your tour dates and i'll make it a point coming <laughs> out and saying hey hopefully you have a day off too maybe yeah. take you on a hike or something Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Griff Reese and Jason Little for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great stuff at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan. The TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Range, and we offer special thanks this week to Keenan Cush. See you next time.